We don't all have the same gifts, and they're not permanent. The Spirit gives to each one individually as He wills. You're listening to a sermon series titled Together, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Martin Luther said in the hymn that we're going to sing at the conclusion of the service today, he sang in that hymn on the screen, the, the mighty fortress is our God. He says these words, the spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Now observe with me for a minute that first line. The spirit and the gifts are ours. Luther obviously believed that the Holy Spirit, as well as the gifts of the Spirit, were available and beneficial to the church. He said the Spirit and the gifts are ours. If the Corinthians were to, and we know they couldn't because of church history and, you know, time continuum, space-time continuum, but if the, the Corinthian church could have sang Luther's hymn, they may have changed those lyrics to, the Spirit and the gifts are mine. If there were ever a word to describe the Corinthian church, it could very well be the word abusive. Not necessarily that they were physically harming one another, but they were certainly misusing, or we could say corrupting, what they had been given. For example, they took the grace of God and they abused the grace of God, which caused them to champion, of all things, someone who is living in unrepentant immorality. They took their differences of opinions and even began to sue one another. They had the liberty of God to be a Christian and to have these differing views, and they yet abused those liberties and began to indulge in excess rather than considering their other brothers and sisters in Christ. And they also took the spiritual gifts that the Spirit had empowered for the church, and they began to abuse those um, that the Spirit had richly blessed them with to their own demise. Now, some of the abuses in the church of Corinth caused them to have legitimate questions for the Apostle Paul. And so they were writing to him to ask him to answer some of these questions. So what we call 1 Corinthians in our New Testament is kind of the New Testament Q&A letter. In other words, they wrote to Paul saying, help us with some questions, Paul. And Paul says, okay, here's my response to those questions. Here's the answer to the uh, inquiries that you had. For example, in chapter 7, verse 1, on the screen you'll see where Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then he proceeds to answer some of their questions. Questions about marriage and singleness. Questions about what do you do with food that's been offered to an idol? Uh, and a lot more questions. And one of the things that they were really ignorant about uh, was spiritual gifts. So Paul clears up the confusion. Look with me at verse 1 where Paul says these words. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, thankfully, we are here 2,000 years later, and spiritual gifts are no longer controversial. 
and they're no longer confusing. <laughs> we, did a, we did a men's fight club back in January of 2019. If men, you don't know what fight club is, it's basically a group of men that get together and they argue or debate theology. We haven't had one in a while, but we'll be getting back to it, I'm sure. And we did a fight club last January on the theme of spiritual gifts. And it was hands down the largest group of men we've ever had in one gathering. We, we actually had men showing up from different churches in different parts of Florida because they heard about the topic that we were going to be discussing. Uh, let's be honest. When we say that there is a controversy surrounding gifts, what we usually mean is one particular gift um, that we're speaking about, and that is the gift of tongues. So what I do not want to accomplish today, and I hope you understand this, what I'm not going to try to accomplish today is to argue for or against tongues in a church gathering. Okay, I don't intend to give us a comprehensive biblical theology on glossalia in 45 minutes or less, okay? But I do intend to exegete this passage to challenge us to consider one main point. So if you're taking notes, we'll put it on the screen and I'll just read it out loud. This is the main point of the entire passage, and true expositional preaching um, gets its information and its formation, the main points, Holy Spirit itself. So the main point of the text is on the screen. The church is gifted by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God and the good of others. That is our main idea today, and uh, I would love for you to jot that down. Now, to the text. We're going to dig into five aspects of spiritual gifts. And the point of this sermon is to challenge us. It's not to try to convince you uh, to believe differently. It's really to exhort us and to challenge us to action, okay? So um, let's look at five aspects of spiritual gifts from verses 1 through 11. The first one is this, if you're taking note, number one, gifts are given only to the truly regenerate, verses 1 through 3. Look at verse 1 again with me. Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. The church he's writing to was uninformed. So Paul is writing to clear up this confusion. However, we just read this word gifts, but little insight here, the word gifts is not actually mentioned in verse 1 in the original Greek. In fact, if we were to read this literally, Paul would be saying this, now concerning spirituals. So he's just gone into detail from last week, chapter 11, on the fact that they were being carnal. And now he gives a subject change and says, now concerning things of the Spirit. So we have a big subject change. The word spiritual here is the word pneuma, and the root word starting in verse 4 for gifts is the word charisma. So if you've heard of charismatics, we'll get into that, but that's where the word comes from, for the word forgive. Now we would say a very simple definition of spiritual gifts is they are simply manifestations of divine grace. Here, Paul calls the church brothers. He's not physically related to them, but they are brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's calling them uh, brothers in the church. They are in the faith. And then in verse 2, he begins to describe what their life was like before Christ. Look at verse 2 with me. He says, you know that when you were pagans, past tense, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So in their minds, the Corinthians are like, listen, we're spiritual. But Paul says, hey, not so long ago, you weren't spiritual, you were pagans. So you know that when you were pagans, you were, you could say, spirit-led. 
You were spirit-led. You were led by false, demonic, mute spirits. The, the word for idols here, mute idols, is actually dumb idols. Now, we don't say the word dumb in, in the same context as mute, but the idea is that it is voiceless, that it is the, the, um, the beast would speak this way. It's, it's just without speech. And so what was going on in Corinth? Let me show you a quote from one commentator. Um, he says this about the city of Corinth. He says, many of the pagan temples of Corinth had as their centerpiece ornately crafted idols. It was believed that these gave messages through human spokesmen through trances or ecstatic experiences. Those who had these experiences were considered very gifted and spiritual, being, as it was assumed, instruments through which the God, little g, the false God, spoke. Often these experiences were accompanied with acts of great immorality, which is probably what's behind Paul's words, however you were led. Such conduct is utterly unbecoming of one who is in Christ. But it appears that the Corinthians still retained some of their old paganistic ways and sought to import them into their worship of Christ. Now, it was believed that, and falsely, of course, but it was believed that you could appeal to a false god to help you, and also you could appeal to a false god to curse others. So people would appeal to the name of Dagon, for example, for a blessing, for favor, or they would appeal to the false god for a curse against someone else. But in verse 3, Paul sets the record straight. Look at verse 3. He says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, scholars are divided about how this can be interpreted, at least the first part of this verse. So we could interpret it this way, that the pagans were cursing others by invoking the name of their idol, and maybe Christians were doing that. Maybe Christians were saying, Jesus, I call on you to curse that person in Jesus' name. And that's possible. Um, some believe, though, that in the synagogue, some of the religious leaders were trying to get Christians to kind of isolate themselves. So they would go to the, the congregation in the synagogue of Jews and say, we want everyone to affirm that Jesus is accursed. So say it with me now, Jesus is accursed. Well, no true Christian who still attended synagogue would ever utter those words. And so there's a belief that maybe they were trying to thin out the Christians from the Jews. Certainly in Acts 26.11, Paul seems to be hinting that that was one of his tactics to try to force believers to blaspheme God. Well, either way, we know the Holy Spirit will never inspire a believer to say something blasphemous. But on the flip side, no one can say Jesus is Lord unless they are truly regenerated. This phrase right here in the text, Jesus is Lord, is one of the earliest Christian creeds. When we say Jesus is Lord, that is not just a phrase meaning he's in charge. That also is an affirmation of Christ's deity. When we say Jesus, that is an affirmation of Christ's humanity. No one can speak of the deity of Jesus Christ as central to his theology apart from the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. And so first century Christians were dying martyrs' deaths proclaiming not Caesar is Lord, but changing it to Jesus is Lord. That means Jesus is the kurios. He is the Lord. He's the sole 
legitimate authority. Jesus reigns supreme. Today we're asking questions about certain governmental authorities and who has the authority to do this. The ultimate governing authority is not the governor, it's not the president, it's not the prime minister, it's not the principal, it's not the parent. We know it is Christ, amen? So Christ is the governing authority. He reigns supreme. And so this statement, Jesus is Lord, affirms both his deity, his messiahship. It also says he is uh, the human I came as a man. It sets him apart as my master. I am fully submitted to him in every possible way. He's Lord of my life. Now listen, it is impossible to declare this rightly and truly unless you're made alive by the Holy Spirit. You might be an unbeliever and you can utter those three words in, in sequence, Jesus is Lord, you might be able to say those out loud, but that doesn't mean you're, you're affirming them, declaring them, lining your life up underneath the lordship of Christ unless you're born from above. One person said it this way. They said, when someone makes the claim to any spiritual gift, ask the question, does that person exalt Christ with his gift? Does he in any way demean the person of Christ? Does he realize that Jesus is Lord over his gift? Any person who claims to have any spiritual gift and does not exalt Jesus Christ as the God-man is probably no Christian at all. So when we think about the spiritual gifts or the spirituals, these cannot be demonstrated by those who are unbelievers. Does everyone understand that? So you must be regenerate, made alive by the Spirit of God to receive spiritual gifts. Now, that's number one. Let's look at our second big idea. And that is that gifts are given to the church by the Godhead. Look at verse 4. Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Did you catch the work of the Trinity in these verses? Maybe you missed it. Look again, verse 4, we have the Holy Spirit mentioned. Verse 5, we have Jesus mentioned in the context of Lord, and then we have the Father mentioned in verse 6 when we see God. Notice with me the unity of the Godhead, the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. Unity, but diversity. And so the church is the recipient and the reflection of the glory of the Godhead, the fact that God is living in perfect, loving, relational unity and yet in the context of diversity and distinction. We should see unity and diversity, not uniformity. Uniformity is where everyone talks the same, dresses the same, looks the same. That's not what we seek. We seek unity and diversity, and that's what we see in our God. Now, notice with me the three different things being emphasized in these verses. Maybe you missed them, but in verse 4, we see the word gifts. The Spirit gives the gifts, and this is the word charisma. Then we see in verse 5, service. And you would translate this ministries. But the idea is to minister to others, to serve others. And Jesus gives the variety of service. And then we see in verse 6, activities. And this is where we get the word energy from. It's actually a word translated as energy. And so the emphasis here is on the active part of the activity. All right? Now, let's just follow Paul's train of thought. Paul is saying this to the church and to us. There are lots of different gifts in the church, but it's the Holy Spirit who's the one bestowing the gifting. Paul says there's lots of different ways that you can serve Jesus' church, but he's the one 
whom the church belongs to. There's a lot of different ways that you can expend your energy, but the Father is the one who's truly empowering the Christian. So the Holy Spirit is sovereignly giving us spiritual gifts as Christ provides the opportunities in the church to use those gifts, and then we rely upon the power of the Father to energize us towards serving the church. So whenever someone says, I'm just tired and I can't serve anymore, I would say, well, I want to encourage you to pray for energy from the Father. If someone says, there's no areas in this church to get involved with, I'd say, well, pray that Jesus would open up new opportunities for you. If you said, I don't have any spiritual gifts, I'd say, well, now we've got an issue because the text that we're unpacking right now says that you do. And so look at verse 7, and let's look at our third idea. Verse 7 says this, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you're taking notes, this is the key verse in this passage. And so I want to spend a minute kind of digging into this and breaking it down. This third point is that gifts are given for the common good of the church. Let's break this down in each little phrase. So first he says, to each is given. Uh, That is speaking to each and every Christian. So isn't that encouraging, church, that none of us are excluded? In other words, you don't have to cross a spiritual threshold or have some next-level spiritual experience to receive a spiritual gift. They are distributed to each and every Christ follower. He says, to each is given. Secondly, he says, the manifestation of the Spirit. And this is a reminder that the gifts originate and are empowered by the Holy Spirit. D.A. Carson wrote a great work on 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and the title of his book is called Showing the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit giving gifts to the church is the manifestation of the Spirit. So we as Christians, really, that is what it means and through manifest God, to, to display the glory of God in the church and through the church to the world. And, and that, I think, is a great description, that God, His extraordinary glory, it's displayed through ordinary means. And so listen, this is not about us manifesting our talent, nor is this about building our name or building our glory or building some ministry that makes a lot of notoriety or money. That's not the idea at all. This is to put the power of God on display for all to see and enjoy. So it's for the manifestation of the Spirit. And then he says, for the common good. In other words, that's the result of spiritual gifts. It's not to flash and be impressive and for people to go, wow, that guy's spiritual. That's what they were doing in Corinth. The idea is that it's profitable to the entire church. Remember that definition we opened with? The church is gifted by the Holy Spirit for the, good, uh, for the glory of God and the good of others. Now, since we're on this point, I want to make sure and mention that spiritual gifts are for edification. They are for the common good. They are to build others up. Now, I know that you've met someone who thinks that they have the spiritual gift of criticism, discouragement, and shaming. (laughs) Um, Do we need to be corrected and exhorted? Absolutely. Uh, but not just shot down over and over and over. I remember years ago, I was a part of a church that had these little cards that they had near the tithe box, and they were called encouragement cards. And the idea was that you take them, and it's just an open blank space, and it, it was pre-kind of set up for an address, and you would just take them, 
And the idea was you would just write a verse, write a word of encouragement, and then put the person in the church's name, drop it in the tithe box, and someone's ministry in the church was to take that and to know if that person was, you know, in the church so they would send it to them or deliver it to them. Well, what ended up happening is that someone in the church began to write anonymous, um, angry, rebuking uh, messages to the church. They were writing these anonymous verses that were like destructive to people. Just like, you know, in three days, God's going to tear you down. And they just like send all these like discouraging notes to people. And so the church kind of had to do a timeout and a reset and say, hey, hold on. That's not the purpose of uh, spiritual gifts. And it's definitely not the meaning behind an encouragement card. <laughs> it's a discouragement card. Uh, and so the ultimate reason that God has given a variety of gifts is to ensure that the church is built up, not just torn down. Now look at verses 8 through 10. Everyone's been waiting for this part, which is where we get a quick list of some of the spiritual gifts that Paul mentions to Corinth. Again, this is definitely not exhaustive. So if you camp out here and say these are the only gifts that are given, and they're given to believers permanently, and you always have that gift, you're deeply misled. Notice with me, verse 8, he says, For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues." Let's not miss the greater point here. Number four on the screen, gifts are given in variety to the church. Now, I, I know that we want to go into great detail here and have each one of these deeply explained and described, but that's not what Paul does here. Uh, there are other gifts mentioned in the New Testament. We read one of them in our time of singing earlier in First Peter or uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, but there's also some gifts mentioned in 1 Peter 4 and in Romans chapter 12. Now here, Paul doesn't describe any of these. He just lists them, and, and I don't want us to miss the bigger point that Paul seems to be trying to make. Okay, don't miss the bigger point. The point he seems to be making is, well, hey, one person has this gift in a moment, and then another person, by the same Spirit, has a different gift. And then this person has this gift and this gift, and they seem to be complementary or to offset one another. For example, he says, the Holy Spirit may allow someone to utter a word of wisdom, but then the Holy, same Holy Spirit may have someone else completely different. Instead of wisdom, they offer knowledge. One person over here is gifted to have great faith to trust God, but this person over here might actually apply that faith and go and do specific things with it. One believer over here may speak a word of prophecy. This believer over here may say, mm, let me discern what you just said. This believer over here may speak in a foreign unknown language that's been empowered by the Spirit, but this person over here is able to articulate those languages in an understandable way. So don't miss the bigger point. Lest any Corinthian believer think that he or she has the market on gifts, Paul reminds us, no, all of us are needed to contribute to the overall edification of the church. Now, time's not going to permit us to go in detail in each one of these. We could do it in a follow-up study at some point. I encourage you to do um, your own study 
of the spiritual gifts. But since we're in this text, let me at least give us uh, what most commentators agree are definitions of this list. So we'll put them on the screen for you, and we'll go through these um, semi-quickly. So he mentions the utterance of wisdom. And I don't, I don't want you to think that that just means wisdom, but it's the utterance of wisdom. Okay? Or another translation says the word of wisdom. The idea here is that you are able to speak insight into doctrinal truth. You're able to give insight. So you read a text like, I don't understand what this means. And then someone is able to give insight into doctrinal truth. We have the utterance of knowledge. Again, this is communicating knowledge, not just having street smarts. This is spirit-empowered instruction on applying doctrinal truth. Sometimes people mix wisdom and knowledge, the utterance. But the idea is that one is insight and one is instruction. And often we see those displayed in, in gospel preaching. We see the utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge. Well, then he says faith. And this is not, just want you to know this, this is not salvific faith. This is not having saving faith. Okay? We already are assuming that Christians receive spiritual gifts. You're already regenerate. This idea is an unusually strong measure of trust in God. Some have the gift of faith in that moment. Well, then he mentions gifts of healing. I want to draw your attention to the the multiplicity, that there are gifts, not gift. So this means there might be moments where you're praying for someone, and the idea is that there's an ability to restore health in some way. So I would pray for someone, and that does not mean I dismiss eating rightly, being in the right environment, um, using medical wisdom and knowledge. That doesn't excuse any of that. Uh, But the idea is that this person would have their health restored in some way. And these are gifts. These are a variety of different um, things. Then he mentions working of miracles. And this is often translated as extraordinary power of a supernatural nature. In the first century, we see this in the case of exercising demons or raising the dead or even inducing harm on the unbelieving. Remember when Paul... um, rebukes the sorcerer and he's struck with blindness. This would have been in that category of extraordinary power of a supernatural nature. Now, when you, when when we, we throw this out too much and we say, there's a miracle. Like you say, like, I got a raise at my work. It's a miracle, right? I would say, that's not supernatural. That's just, you know, God's goodness to you. So we have to be careful that we don't start throwing around miracles as uh, spiritual gifts all the time. Well, then he mentions prophecy, and prophecy in its simplest and truest definition is simply proclaiming the Word of God, as if that's simple, but proclaiming the Word of God. This, usually in our minds, we think prophecy is foretelling. So we would say to someone, hey, don't go 64 home. I have a a prophetic word for you that there's going to be an accident, and you need to not go home on 64. You need to go home State Road 70. Uh, We think that's prophecy. It's not as much foretelling as it is forth-telling. In other words, I am communicating the words of God. Well, then he mentions discernment of spirits, and that means having discernment, not just of prophetic words, but determining if someone is coming and maybe they have a false message. Maybe they're rep- misrepresenting God. Maybe they're a deceiver, and it's being able to discern that uh, in the message that they're bringing. Say, oh, I don't know if that is true. Then, then he mentions tongues, and we'll just skip over this because there's no controversy here. Everyone agrees with tongues, and so we'll just kind of bypass it. No, of course we're going to talk about this. Now, I have a view, and it may be different than your view. Um, I have a few reasons why I believe this, but I believe tongues 
is, this is really controversial, speaking in an unlearned language. I believe that's what tongues is. Um, now, I personally believe that the gifts of tongues that are, the gift of tongues that's mentioned in the New Testament involves living languages. If those living languages are left uninterpreted, then that gift is neither beneficial nor intelligible for anyone, even the person who's doing the speaking. Uh, and so if you think about it, that someone might in the first century say, yeah, that person was probably praying in, a, in an angelic language. Maybe they were praying in Swahili. What would Swahili sound like to the first century hearers? Well, we know that it would have been an unintelligible, unlearned language. 1 Corinthians 14, which I encourage you to go read later, it, it speaks about or teaches about those who speak in other unknown languages, and it says that they're not communicating man to man, but man to God. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, the unbelieving onlookers marveled that the Christians were speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. They weren't just speaking gibberish, they were speaking in actual languages. So prophecy is when God speaks to man, his word, whereas speaking in tongues seems to be man declaring the praises of God. And Paul will later go on in 1 Corinthians 14 to say that, that tongues are less important than prophecy unless there's an interpretation. And so he exhorts the church to desire prophecy more than they desire to speak in tongues, unless they pray personally that God would give them an interpretation themselves. So the interpretation, we would define it this way, is the ability to articulate an unlearned language into the known language of the assembly. Okay? So someone comes and begins, they don't know Spanish, they begin to speak in Spanish. If you know Spanish, that doesn't mean you've been given the spiritual gift of interpretation. That means you've learned Spanish. So that means the person who's interpreting has not yet known that unknown language. Now, Paul says when there's no interpretation, tongues are not to occur in a church gathering because it's more beneficial to speak five intelligible words than 10,000 in an unknown language. It's better to say, Jesus Christ is Lord, amen. That is more beneficial than to get up and to speak in an unknown language. And I've been around the world a couple different places, and I can say every time I've had a translator, it is much better than if I just address a crowd like I was in Hungary speaking to Hungarian pastors, and thankfully I had that translator. And a couple times I would say something brief, and he would keep going on and on and on. And I was kind of looking at him like, what, what are you doing? Where, where are you going with that? And he was like, well, you used an American phrase that we don't understand. So I had to explain to them, that the pastor's trying to relate to you. <laughs> I was like, okay, great, thanks for that. Uh, but it, it, it's helpful to have intelligibility. In fact, I would argue 1 Corinthians 14, the whole point of the church gathering is that there's intelligibility. So if you've ever been in part of a church gathering where everyone erupts into speaking in tongues all at once and there's no interpretation, that is a misrepresentation of what the church gathering is supposed to be. There's always to be intelligibility. And so when Paul says people who speak in tongues without an interpretation, and there's more than two or three, Paul says that's not decent or in order. Now, at the end of this text, in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 29 through 30, 31, look at these words on the screen. Paul asks a series of questions, and I want you to think about what, what is the answer to these questions. These seem to be rhetorical. So he says, are all apostles? We would say an emphatic, yell it out, no. Okay, let's do it again. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? You, know, you guys weren't as loud on that one. Do all interpret? 
No, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Don't say no to that. Um, So the implied answer is no. Not everyone has the same gifts. They are varied, they're diverse, and yet notice our last idea. Number five, gifts are given individually, but they're spirit-empowered. Verse 11. Verse 11 should put to rest any controversy that we have surrounding spiritual gifts. Look at verse 11. Again, I'm not coming to you from a theological uh, argument. I just want to be faithful to what the text teaches. And it says, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Holy Spirit is the one who distributes the gifts to whomever he wills, whenever he wills, at whatever point in church history that he wills. So I don't believe the gifts listed here in this text in particular are permanent. In other words, the Holy Spirit did not necessarily give Paul the gift of healing 24-7. These are things that seem to manifest in real time as we're doing ministry. And so Paul in uh, 2 Timothy 4.20, if you need a, a, a proof text, I'll give you one. 2 Timothy 4.20 Paul simply says, I left Trophimus sick. Um, I left him sick. And uh, why would Paul do that? Why would Paul leave someone sick? Uh, In other words, if I've been given, and I have done this, people have come and said, will you pray for me for healing? And I believe James 5, like, yes, the elders will anoint you with oil, we'll pray for you for healing. Um, And we want to still seek medical care and all those things. But, But yes, let's pray for healing. And I've prayed for people, and I've seen verifiable medical evidence that they seem to be healed from what they're asking for prayer for. But listen, that does not mean that I now have the gift of healing. You know, it's not like I, if I did, then I, hey, Pastor Pilgrim's going to solve COVID. We've got it, man. I'm just going to go, if I had that, I would just go into every single hospital and just like, hey, the pandemic's over. We just call Pastor Pilgrim. Who needs hydroxychloroquine? We've got Pastor P, all right? We got it solved here, all right? When Jesus went into the pool of Bethesda, um, he healed one man. And we know from the text there was, a, there was a, at least uh, you know, a handful of people, if not a dozen or more people. But Jesus doesn't clear out the whole pool. And so we don't, listen, we don't conjure up the gifts in our own power, in our own strength. If you've been a part of a church that said, all right, we want to teach you how to pray in tongues and so repeat after me, my mama want a Honda, my mama want a Honda. Okay, say it again, my mama, look, now you've got the gifts of tongues. And that's not the idea. We don't conjure up the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We don't use the gifts for our own personal advantage or benefit, right? Or to build up some international ministry. Like I am a faith healer now. I'm, I have the gift of healing. I have the gift of whatever. We don't all have the same gifts and they're not permanent. The Spirit gives to each one individually as he wills. Now, I've been thinking about how to apply this passage of Scripture for our series, which is together, and what it means to be the church from this text. And so to apply this passage of Scripture, I want to ask three questions. But before we get to those questions, I want to spend just a minute on the topic of whether or not the gifts of the Spirit are still in function today or not. And so I want to give us three terms and I know we're practicing some social distancing, but if, if you lean over to your neighbor who's behind you or near you or your spouse, or if you're watching online, you can do this to your uh, wife or your children. We're going to say these words out loud just so we can pronounce them rightly, okay? So we're going to put them on the screen, 
and then we're going to um, try to pronounce them to the person next to us. I know it's cheesy, but let's just practice this, all right? The first one is the word cessationist. Go ahead, practice that. Yes, close enough. All right, cessationist. Then the second word is continuationist. Go for it. Continuationist. And then the third is Pentecostal. All right, so let's define those. So cessationists believe that some of the spiritual gifts have ceased. Continuationists believe that the gifts continue to be exercised today. And then the Pentecostals believe that, a little further than that, that all spirit-baptized Christians will speak in tongues. Now, before you come at me, there are a lot of different nuances in each one of these views. And we're not going to cover all of those nuances. Look at the screen. Christians can hold to one of these three positions, and believe it or not, they can still be a Christian. <laughs> you can hold to one of these, and yes, they're a brother in Christ. Okay, so this is, we would say, hashtag family argument. Okay, this is a family discussion. This is not something to divide over and then start to throw the heresy title, all right? Um, now, listen to me carefully. All Christians are actually cessationists at some level, at some level. For example, we all believe in Orthodox Christianity that the canon of the authority of inspired Scripture is closed, amen? We believe it's closed, which means there's not going to be a new book. We don't say, Lord, I want the gift of writing a new uh, book of the Bible, right? Because the canon of Scripture is closed. So in that sense, that has ceased. I personally have a lot of um, evidence to believe this, but I believe that the term apostle, modern-day apostle, defined the same way that the early church defined apostle, is also ceased. So every Christian, at some degree, is a cessationist. But I want to share with you um, 10 reasons why I am a continuationist. Okay, so just a little backstory on me. I grew up a Pentecostal. So um, my dad met my mom at a Jesus festival, later known as the Cornerstone Festival. You guys remember that? Kind of like the hardcore. Uh, it was much more hippie in the 70s. And so my dad walked up to my mom and said, hey, far out, man. The Lord wants me to marry you. And she said, far out. And then they got married. So I grew up in a hippie home. There's a lot of Pentecostal uh, practice. Uh, my extended family's Pentecostal, and so as I grew in Scripture, in my, my learning, um, that is my presuppositional base. That's where I kind of um, hail from. And so everything in me growing up in that wants to reject all of charismania, all the, the, the looseness of the gifts, okay? So just so you know, that's where I come from. And so I like to say I'm charismatic, not just with a seatbelt, I'm charismatic with a safety harness, okay? That's what I usually like to say about me. But I believe uh, that the gifts continue today. So um, let me explain 10 reasons why I'm a continuationist. And you don't have to agree with these, but you can take a screenshot if you want um, with your phone. So number one, I'm a continuationist because the New Testament consistently and overwhelmingly speaks about the presence of spiritual gifts. Would we love it not to? Sure, but it does. 1 Peter 4, Romans 12. Number two, I'm a continuationist because we are exhorted, not just Corinth, but the church, to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And he's writing to the carnal Christians who are misusing the gifts. And he says, but you need to earnestly desire them. Number three, I'm a continuationist because the purpose of spiritual gifts, listen, the purpose in this text is not to attest to you being an apostle. It's not to apostolic attestation of the proclamation of the gospel. No, it's mutual edification. That's why the gifts are given. It's to build up the church. 
Number four, I'm a continuationist because the Godhead is active in empowering all believers throughout all time with the same spirit that Christ received. And there's a few verses uh, that reference that. Uh, Number five, I'm a continuationist because even church members who were non-apostles, if it's just to attest to being an apostolic person and message, even non-apostles like Stephen and Philip exercised in the miraculous. Uh, Number six, I'm a continuationist because 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12, when it says that we see in part, but when we're made perfect, that is not necessarily speaking about any compelling biblical source that informs us that any of the gifts will cease. On the contrary, according to Acts 2, referencing Joel 2, the presence of spiritual gifts seems to be an affirmation that we are living in the last days of the new covenant. Number eight, I'm a continuationist because all of the spiritual gifts are given by God. Thus, they must submit to God's word as the final and highest authority. I wouldn't say I've got a new word that's contradictory to God's word. Number nine, I'm a continuationist because we're instructed not to reject spiritual gifts, not just in Corinth, but in the church of Thessalonica. Uh, We're to test them and hold fast what is good. And then finally, number 10, because many church fathers affirmed the presence of spiritual gifts, not just a resurgence in the 20th century. So we see Arrhenius, Chrysostom, Augustine, Tertullian, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Jerome, Ambrose, many more affirm the presence of spiritual gifts. Now, I grew up in a church where they were abused. And so you might be in that same camp. You said, you know, I've seen spiritual gifts abused. And have there been abuses? Yes. But just because something is abused doesn't mean it should be flatly rejected. In other words, I might watch a television show where someone is morbidly obese and they abuse food. But that doesn't mean that because I observe the misuse of food, then I should just reject eating altogether. I'm just never going to eat again because that person misused it. See, the solution is not prohibition of use, but proper use. Does that make sense? So I don't prohibit consuming food. I properly consume food. And it's the same with the gifts. Just because our background was a church that abused the gifts doesn't mean that we should prohibit them. In fact, we need to biblically learn how to see them properly and biblically exercised in a church community. If anyone abused the gifts, it was Corinth, and yet Paul says, earnestly desire these gifts. Why? Because they build up the body. Now, now whatever side you're on in this discussion, maybe you're a cessationist, maybe you're a continuationist, maybe you're Pentecostal, I think verse 11 trumps our dogma. Verse 11 says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. One person said it this way, and I love this. This really captures what I'm trying to say. He says, the sovereignty of the Spirit in the distribution of the gifts should warn us not to be dogmatic about whether or not or the degree to which the gifts of the Spirit should be evident now in the church. This should be, it should be, a fun discussion among believers. It should not be something that we divide over or that drives a wedge of dissension into our friendships. We should discuss it, not divide over it. Now, with that in mind, with the plurality of the gifts mentioned in this chapter, three questions for us to close with and apply, okay? Number one, how has God supernaturally, spiritual gifts are you to build others up? Remember, this is more than just you being talented. Spiritual gifts are not talent. Uh, 
this is not something you produce in your own strength. This is spiritually bestowed upon you by the Holy Spirit. So how has God supernaturally used you to build others up? Notice that I didn't say, has God gifted you? Because the obvious answer is, yes, of course he has. So the question is not if, the question is how. Gifts are not just for the spiritually elite or for the pastors. They're for all believers, even for carnal Corinthians. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, should it not show us that gifts are nothing unless they're laid on the altar of God? That it is nothing to have the gift of oratory. It's nothing to have the gift of eloquence. It's nothing to have learning. It's nothing to have influence unless they all be dedicated to God and consecrated to his service. So how has God supernaturally used you to build others up? You might say, I don't know. I have no idea, Pastor. Help me understand. What are my gifts? Well, the only way, I mean, you could go online, go to spiritualgifts.gov and find out what your spiritual gift is today. Only $19.99. Subscribe now. Right? Some people do that. I don't love that idea. I understand it. There's personality tests, which are even less helpful. Uh, but the best way to know what your gifts are is to start serving in the local church. And then what happens is the Lord reveals it to you and the church comes alongside of you to confirm you definitely do not have that gift whatsoever or you definitely do. And so let me present the second question with a little bit more of a, a heavy dose. Okay, second question is this. If you were not given a spiritual gift, would the church even notice? Now, we know you have, but let me ask it this way. Are you involved to such an extent that your gifts are instrumental in the edification of Christ's church? Or would nobody notice because you're not active? Paul said to the Romans in Romans 12, he said, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he goes into detail in a different set of gifts. So Paul says, we have a variety of gifts. Let us use them. In other words, your gift does not belong to you. It belongs to us. Uh, one year at Christmas, well, every year we get, we get kind of uh, end of year cards. You guys get those? The Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, uh, kind of year in review um, collage cards from different families. You guys get those? So we get like 30 of them a year. So we get these cards. And one of them I didn't open a, a few years ago. I was just like, yeah, it's a distant family member. And I know what's going on with them. I'm just, you know, it's going to be the same old like Merry Christmas, you know. And so I, I just was kind of being dumb about it. And so um, we basically left the card with all of our, I call it our decorative debris. You know, we, we kind of put it all, stashed it away, put it up in the attic. Well, then the festive garden. We got all the cards out from last year and, and all of the, um, you know, the festive garb. And so we're getting all the stuff out and the tinsel and whatever. And so um, we reach in and Jen comes up to me, my wife, she goes, um, hey, you didn't open this. And so I was like, oh. And so I opened it. It was from last year. There was a $100 gift card <laughs> in the envelope. And thankfully, it was to my favorite electronics store and it didn't expire. And so I was able to do a little extra Christmas that year with that $100. Thank you very much. And I always open gift cards or cards now and maybe, maybe in an inappropriate way shake the cards just to make sure I don't miss anything. Uh, when we neglect the gifts that God has given to us, we miss out, but it's the church that truly misses out. And so use your gifts in the church. One last question. This is a little broader question for us. Number three, what areas in your life may you be holding back from the church? 
For some of us, it might be contributing financially. For others, it might be using the gift of teaching to help with our kids' ministry. Maybe it's sharing a word of encouragement that's aptly spoken, like apples of gold and settings of silver, the Proverbs say, with a brother who needs encouragement. Maybe there's leadership that God has uniquely gifted you with or faith, and yet you're trying to find ways to apply that in the world, but not in the church. Maybe you're a woman here today and you know of a fellow sister that needs encouragement and care, but you shy away from offering acts of mercy because maybe that sister slighted you years and years and years ago. I want to encourage all of us to lean in, not lean out. Lean in. In the first century church, there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and they leaned away from the church. They lied to the church. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They were stingy with what God had provided them. And sadly, because of that compromise, they were judged. I know in my own life, the Lord has sovereignly pushed my chair forward when I, even as a pastor, want to lean away. He has pushed me forward to lean into the church. And we all need to consider what does it mean for me as an individual, for us as a family, to lean in, to make ourselves known to contribute, to participate, to commit to this community. And we're going to unpack that more next week when we look at what it means to be a part of a body, the body of Christ. Now, as we wrap this up, last week we talked about church not being Uber, uh, but being a bus. And so if you missed that analogy, you can go back and listen or watch. But I want to close with a, a familiar illustration or a similar illustration this morning. Sometimes we think the church is like the game of football. I think it's like the game of football. So think of the irony of a football stadium, just for a minute. There's 22 people actively on the field who desperately need to rest, and there's 60,000 people in the stands passively who desperately need to exercise. <laughs> uh, so what is sad is that we have that view in mind when we think about church. We think that there is the stands, and then there's the stage, and we do have a stage, but we sometimes think that's, that's where it happens. It's a spectator sport. We turn on the lights and we spectate. We don't participate. We consume. We don't contribute. We're simply a fan. But hey, if there's a better team in town that's worthy of changing stands, then we're going to go check it out. But see, I want you to think about football for a minute. If the quarterback were to be injured on the field and there's no backup, can you imagine the silliness of the coach turning to the crowd and saying, anybody out there know how to throw a football? Does anyone out there know how to command a team? Uh, obviously, there'd be a few of us who'd be like, yeah, give me a chance, you know, and we'd get crushed. But we would all, you know, um, there's some of us who would want to be the guy. But most people would look to their left and to their right, and they'd say, well, not me. I'm not qualified for that. And they never consider being on the team. They're not there to work. They're there to watch. In fact, I don't know, guys, if we have a picture of the crazy fan for the screen, but um, what is wrong with this guy? What is wrong with him? Other than the fact that he's cheering for Dallas, uh, what, what is wrong with him? <laughs> See, he's wearing the jersey. He's got lots of energy. Doesn't that mean he's on the team? No. No, he's a fan. He's not on the team. Now, I want us to change our mindset for a minute, and now we're going to put ourselves. The church is not in the stands. The church is the team on the field, okay? Just for a minute put ourselves in the role of the 11 players actually on the field. As a team, we have one objective, and we're achieving it one simple yard at a time. We all have a captain who represents us. 
We each have a unique position to play, and yet none of those positions are more or less important than any other. Even the long snapper has an important role on the team. And so when we get together in the huddle, we're equipped for what the next play is going to be, and then we break, we scatter, we line up, and we contribute to the goal that we might win the prize. You see, the church member is not the guy sitting in the stands yelling at the coach. No, he's the guy on the field who's fighting the good fight. And we'll dig into this idea a lot more next week. And so I encourage you, read the rest of chapter 12, and we'll look at what our responsibility and our response is as we participate in the greater body of Christ together. Amen? Let's stand together, and I want to pray for us, and then we'll close in song. Father, we thank you that you have sovereignly distributed the gifts for the edification of the church. Lord, I know these are controversial questions, and Lord, I pray with a a sense of charity and winsomeness we'd be able to dig in and discuss and, and unpack these ideas and how we flesh this out in practical ways. But Lord, the bigger picture is that we would use the gifts you've bestowed upon us, whatever they may be, variety of things, to build up the church. So help us, Lord, we pray, to see where we can get involved, to not hold back, to not shrink back, to not lean back, but to lean in and lean forward. Use us, we pray, not just in this church community, here in this room and online, but in Bradenton, in Lakewood Ranch, in Sarasota, to the ends of the earth, for your glory and your renown. The church is not just here for the church. We are here to extend your grace and to extend your glory. So as we enjoy your grace and extend your glory today, remind us of the finished work of Christ on our behalf, that we're made alive and that allows us to sing together the finished, conquering, victorious work of Christ on our behalf. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you love your church and that you've laid down your life for the body. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Freedom Elementary School on State Road 64. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.